Hello, my name is Loris Kalgen. I'm at the University of Iowa, Carver College of Medicine. I direct the program in Bioethics and Humanities. I'm also a general internal medicine physician, and I'm pleased to be here with you today to speak about ethical and legal issues at the end of life. First, I'd like to say that I have nothing to disclose regarding conflicts of interest. As you can see from the objectives on this slide, there's a lot of terrain that I'd like to cover. And I realize that uh, one runs the risk of trying to do too much uh, in one setting, but I think at the same time it's helpful, especially when working with a group of individuals who have a lot of clinical experience behind them, to actually touch upon a number of issues that may come up from time to time and be of interest to you all, and I hope that's the case here. As you can see, by the listing of the seven items, we'll first begin with advanced directives and then move on to different standards of surrogate decision-making, talk about code status discussions and challenges related to them, and then land very heavily on the importance of goals of care in end-of-life decision-making as well as in code status discussions specifically. And then we'll talk about some particular ethical features of a range of uh, decision-making contexts towards the end of life that are then also related to this notion of the principle of double effect. And then we'll also end on wondering together why the concept of futility is a challenging issue and often a debated one. So with that, we'll move on to the first topic for discussion, and that is the role and limits of advanced directives. As you can see in this very big picture slide, the purpose of advanced directives is to try to help us respect patients as persons when they cannot speak for themselves and explain to us what they would like us to help them do with respect to their health. As you can see on the left side, when patients have decision-making capacity, we call them autonomous and we treat them very appropriately as their own decision makers. And so if a patient is able to make their own decisions and they can communicate those to us in real time, then by working with them through the dynamic of shared decision making, we of course strive to respect them as persons. Now, advanced directives are only relevant if someone is not able to be their own decision maker. And so then we say their decision-making capacity is absent and they are so-called non-autonomous. And then we rely on something called, as you know, a living will or on a surrogate decision-maker, especially someone who has durable power of attorney for healthcare. The important point here is to say that even if someone has a living will or has appointed a power of attorney for decision-making, that doesn't matter if they have decision-making capacity. If they have decision-making capacity, we work directly with them. This is a copy of a downloadable living will slash power of attorney form from the Iowa uh, State Bar Association. And the reason I put this up here is not on the presumption that you can read the small, tiny print here, but it's to say that this first sort of inch of text right here is the entire living will part of this document. This part is the declaration relating to life-sustaining procedures, which is known as really the living will, and then the rest of it has to do with the power of attorney for healthcare decisions. The point I want to make here is to say that I think many people think that a living will has a lot more content in it than it usually does, and this language in the living will is basically copied and pasted right out of the Iowa Code. 
and it's to say that this is the portion of any living will that's going to be legally binding because it's right out of the Iowa state law. And that law says two particular things about decision-making that we may involve ourselves in with patients when they cannot speak for themselves, if they have a living will. And it says that the person we're working with, the patient we're working with, has to be either in a terminal condition or they have to be deemed by a physician as being permanently unconscious. And actually that has to be seconded by another uh, physician as well. The point is, is that there are these restrictions, these requirements, such that if a patient is not terminally ill or not permanently unconscious, in a technical sense, in a legal sense, the living will law does not pertain to that patient. So that's why we say that under the living will statutory guidelines, clinical situations are restricted. By contrast, Iowa's healthcare power attorney law is written in a way that clinical situations are unrestricted. And if you look into the details, you'll find that the conditions that are covered are general, such that the provision of any care under any circumstance is covered by this law, so that if somebody has a power of attorney for medical decision-making, then that person can make decisions for the patient whether or not the patient is terminally ill or permanently unconscious. So that's why it's important to, to keep this distinction in mind. And for those patients who care about these kinds of details, it's important to tell them that if they've assigned a loved one as a power of attorney, that person actually has more standing in the eyes of the law than they would otherwise in an important way. There are limitations to advanced directives, and in brief, I'm going to draw from an article that was written some years ago that laid some of these out very nicely. Living wills usually do not predict actual future circumstances. Most patients don't know in advance what will be happening towards the end of life, what medical details will be the reality for them, and therefore what decisions have to be made. So living wills are a pretty blunt instrument in most cases. Surrogates often don't discuss end-of-life issues with patients in advance, so when they are called upon to help make decisions, they can be at a loss to know what their loved ones may have wanted. There is often a discordance between surrogates and patients' views, and then clinicians are in an awkward situation as to know how they should make a given decision. Surrogates' predictions of patient preferences are also often poor. Many patients, interestingly enough, want their surrogates' decisions to take precedence over their own wishes. And this sometimes comes up when a patient may have a living will, but they have also appointed a durable power of attorney for health care, and there may be some tension or conflict between what the living will says and what the surrogate who has power of attorney says. And many and it's actually a useful thing to ask patients in advice in advance to say, if there happened to be a difference between your living will and what you stated in it, and what your power of attorney suggests we should do, which would you like to take precedence? That could actually be a useful point of discussion. These authors also point out that in one large study called the support study, the main benefit in advanced directives was the naming of a surrogate decision maker. Uh, so that can be uh, a really good take home point there. And one conclusion these authors want to emphasize is that relationships matter more than autonomous decision-making. And I'm going to end at the end of this presentation 
with a note about autonomy as well, because so much of medical ethics these days focuses on patient autonomy in ways that are very appropriate, but sometimes can actually, I think, distort the picture that we would really want to recommend for ourselves and for our patients, which is to say that we depend upon each other as human beings and especially on our loved ones, and especially when we are vulnerable and incapacitated. It's often the case that many people would much rather be able to rely upon someone they trust and love and allow that person to make decisions for them rather than to spell out in great detail exactly what their preferences are and what they would want in advance of knowing what circumstances they'll actually encounter in the future. Our second topic has to do briefly with two legal standards for surrogate decision making. The two standards are the substituted judgment standard and the best interests standard. The substituted judgment standard, and it's actually codified in Iowa uh, law, really refers to the need to know what the desires of a patient are in order to know what they would want us to do when they cannot speak for themselves. And so that is why we have things like living wills. That is why we talk to family members to say, what do you think your loved one would have desired in this kind of a situation? What would their values be? What would their preferences be? By contrast, we use the, the legal notion of a best interest standard of benefits and burdens when we don't know what a patient would have wanted. So this best interest standard would be used, for instance, in the case of caring for an unidentified adult who's unconscious in the emergency room, who was brought in after being found by the police on a sidewalk, unconscious for some reason. And if we know nothing about that person, there's no wallet, no identity, no medical record, how do we treat that person? Well, we treat them with a sense of what the average human being in our society would want to be done. So we call that a best interest standard. This is also the standard that's used when caring for, for children, especially younger children. And that's the standard that is even used to justify, for instance, going against the wishes of parents who are Jehovah's Witness believers uh, when they refuse to allow a blood transfusion, but when doctors have come to the conclusion that there's a life-threatening condition that requires transfusion, the reason in our society that courts allow pediatricians to go forward with such transfusions in certain circumstances is because our courts rely upon a best interest standard that puts the child's interests ahead of the, the child's parents' uh, requests because this assumption is, is that the child has not yet been able to say what his or her desires are because they haven't reached the age of decision-making capacity. A side point with respect to surrogate decision-making has to do with how well surrogates can predict what their loved ones would want. And this is a, a loaded area because I think it's also uh, it raises the question of what to do when certain patients will say actually they're more interested in us following their surrogates uh, recommendations, even if those recommendations aren't exactly what uh, patients themselves would have wanted. But the point here is to say that study, you know, overall studies would suggest that about two-thirds of the time, if you were to independently ask, at least in hypothetical scenarios, a patient and their surrogate what the patient would want under certain circumstances, about two-thirds of the time you get the same sort of answer. So which is to say that a third of the time a surrogate may simply not know what the, the or not be correct about what their loved one 
or your patient would have wanted. So that's worth keeping in mind when we're dealing with a lot of uncertainties in decision making. The third topic today has to do with code status discussions and challenges related to them. So I tend to talk about the so-called big three uh, forms of, uh, of intervention that are part of uh, resuscitation when someone has had a cardiopulmonary arrest. So it has to do with intubation and compressions and defibrillation. It's important to be very clear at this point to say that when we're talking about DNR orders, we're talking about orders for now. And these are usually orders in the hospital, but in Iowa, we also have the opportunity to write an out-of-hospital DNR order, which I'll come to in a moment. By contrast, advanced directives are about directions for the future. When someone completes an advanced directive, they're not completing an order. They're completing a directive about a future need to have various orders, either for treatment or against treatment, that would sustain their life. So DNR orders about orders for right now at a given point in time. So in Iowa, in 2003, uh, a law was passed that allows for out-of-hospital DNR orders to be written. And you can learn more about this by going to the Iowa Department of Public Health website. The important point here, though, is to remind us once again that like the living will law in Iowa, an adult can have an out-of-hospital DNR order only if their doctor has determined that they have a terminal condition. So this is not something that anyone can have for any reason. They have to be terminally ill, they have to be an adult. Now moving on to DNR orders in general, and I'll give you a, a brief sort of hypothetical scenario. So a 70-year-old man is three months status post a severe brain injury from a ruptured intracerebral aneurysm. Now neurologically stable, but significantly disabled. He is aware and he interacts with people around him. The patient's daughter had medical power of attorney for healthcare. And let's say the intern speaks with the daughter and concludes that the patient should be DNR based on the daughter's uh, uh, recommendations, based on her understanding and her sense of, of her loved one's values. Then I go in and speak with the daughter to confirm uh, that determination. And the daughter says that her father would not want to be a vegetable just being kept alive but he would want to be on life support if a problem could be corrected and he could live longer in his best baseline state. Now, if I were in this situation, I would then determine with this daughter that the patient's code status should be full code, that everything should be done to resuscitate him in the case of cardiopulmonary arrest. And this is an example that I have found over the years uh, that, that could be used to, to say that it, the outcomes of the discuss these discussions really depend upon how we engage with patients and their loved ones about uh, the, the issues we're discussing. And so we need to really wonder together about how we say what we say when we have co-status discussions. Uh, what exactly do we include in those conversations? How much time do we give to these discussions? And do we encourage patients and their family members to ask questions and to really engage in discussion? Or are we so pressed for time uh, that we just move forward and take what answers we get as quickly as we get them? It's important here to really think about this question of how we present what we say. It's appropriate, of course, to provide information and to make recommendations and at times also to try to persuade patients and family members about what we think would be best. It is inappropriate to use any techniques that would be manipulative or coercive. And I realize there can be 
a fine line between appropriate and inappropriate. But we all have to do our best, of course, to make sure that our efforts at strong persuasion, for instance, do not slide into manipulation or coercion. It's also interesting to, to consider that when we talk about code status discussions and CPR, that our patients and their family members may not even understand exactly what we're talking about in terms of the terms we use. For what it's worth, one study showed that, uh, that actually as many as 73% of patients in one sample um, believed they understood what CPR stands for, but when actually queried, only 30% indeed knew what that stood for. And then when asked whether patients know what treatments doctors use during CPR in the hospital, 75% thought that they knew those procedures, but when asked about chest compressions, cardiac defibrillation, and intubation and mechanical ventilation, you can see here the numbers are uh, considerably less than 75%. So I think it's really important to remember that we need to explain to patients what it is we're talking about when we're talking about in-hospital CPR and resuscitation. We should also think about the words we use and the actual phrases that we use when talking about these things. And this is just to give you an example of how in a study context, uh, the, the people doing the study decided to phrase the question about uh, what it, the context that's involved when code status discussions are being addressed. So even the choice of saying that in case my heart stopped beating or my lungs stopped breathing, which would mean that I or you, the patient, were dying, you would want, and then to talk about defibrillation as a form of electricity and using the word shock to make the heart start beating again, to talk about chest compressions in ways that are understandable to patients, and to talk about intubation in a way that is understandable to patients. Time needs to be taken to make sure patients understand what these interventions are all about. So what's the problem with code status discussions? I think the problem or problems associated with them have to do with the challenges of critical illness. It's sudden, incapacitating, fearful because of the threat of death or disability, and there can often be family tensions at these times of, of critical change. The conditions in critical illness around the time when code status may be important for discussion uh, is also very challenging. It's not clear what is the case or what might be the case. And so it's hard to make decisions about withholding life-sustaining treatment when the ground is shifting uh, hour by hour sometimes. The pathophysiology, the technology, the probabilities are all complex. And how doctors and nurses communicate about these things with patients is very demanding. There are time pressures, of course, both due to emergencies, but also just in general. And I think by and large, we lack a standardized approach to these discussions. We should wonder in this day of, of discussion about quality of care and metrics to try to document that, what quality in a code status discussion might look like. And I would suggest that on the one, that firstly, there ought to be a coherence in a, between a patient's understanding their values and their preferences. And we need to engage in dialogue with patients and family members in such a way that we can convince ourselves that such a coherence exists. There also needs to be a shared understanding between clinicians and patients and families about what's going on. What's the diagnosis? What's the prognosis? Can't go forward unless that's clear. What advanced directives have been filled out? What preferences have been previously expressed? And then goals of care. Goals of care, I think, 
are a key area that deserves a lot of attention. And we'll move on to goals of care now. So common treatment goals during the course of a progressive disease could be described as curing, prolonging life, preserving function, and palliating symptoms. And I like to say when showing this slide that, that these neat 90-degree angles and stair-stepping sort of bars make life look simple and definable. And of course, in real life, life is, is not so simple. And especially progressions from one set of goals to another are sometimes very challenging to orchestrate. This is a key slide, at least in my assessment, and that is to say that really so much of decision-making in healthcare is about understanding what's going on, so what's the diagnosis and prognosis, what intervention is being considered, and what goal or goals are being pursued. I would suggest that by virtue of the way we are trained and socialized in medicine and nursing, uh, we tend to very naturally and quickly gravitate towards interventions. Should we intubate or not? Should we transfer to the ICU or not? Should we start dialysis or not? Should we transfer from the nursing home to the ER or not? All of these questions of to do or not to do. By contrast, I think we would do much better if we first tried to come clear on what goal or goals of care should really be guiding all the deliberations and decisions. And so on this next click, you can see that I would recommend as much as is possible that after we're getting clear on what's going on and what's expected, then to have discussions with patients and families about what the most important goal or goals of care should be, and then place interventional options or considerations in the context of those goals. And even CPR discussions, co-status discussions, I think, would be best embarked upon within a goals of care framework, and I'll come back to that later. So what goals of care might we talk about toward the end of life? Based on a structured literature review, uh, my colleagues and I came up with six particular goals of care. And you can see here that they range from cure down to comfort in the first four, and then two special domains of achieving life goals and providing support for family and caregiver. And we suggest a little mnemonic called CLF, CLF. You can see the underlined letters here to, to help us remember that. And I must say here that on a personal note, in my work as an outpatient general internist, I will talk to patients and families about goals of care when appropriate. And I actually will walk through this list with them to say that many patients will find one or more of these goals to be most important for them. And I list them one after another and it works. Patients will say, yes, that's a goal that, that is meaningful to me. And so by the end of that discussion, I can usually then find that there are two or three or so goals that are most important to the patient. And I document that in my note. We have also found from further work that another goal of care, which is, is of a different sort, is actually, especially in inpatient medicine, the goal of clarifying a diagnosis or prognosis. Many patients are admitted to the hospital before it's clear that we know what's going on. And it's hard to talk about these other goals before we know what's going on. So sometimes clarifying diagnosis or prognosis is really the most important thing. And then temporizing measures are taken to support life 
until these issues are uh, clarified. Goals come with their own challenges, uh, of course. If there is more than one most important goal, then it means that there are several important goals and they may have to be prioritized in given cases. Goals appropriately, of course, shift over time. We already talked about uncertainties that can exist. There can also be disagreements about goals, either between patients and family members, between family members, or between doctors and patients, or doctors and families. And the, the point here is to say that even if disagreements persist, talking about goals can sometimes be very important to help clarify what the source of the conflict or disagreement is. This is a slide from Italy that shows an old Roman road with ruts in these stones that were uh, dug into the rock uh, by the repetitive uh, rolling of wheels of chariots many, many years ago. And this is to remind us to say that this idea that uh, all roads may lead to Rome, but sometimes a road leads to Athens in, in, instead of Rome. And so the idea being that it's one issue to have a disagreement with a patient or family when you have the same goal in mind, but different recommendations about how to achieve that goal. It's a different sort of problem when you actually have two different goals in mind. So if, if the family is saying, well, we want to strive for a cure, and the doctor or the nurse or the team is saying, ah, but cure is no longer a reasonable goal, uh, we should be focusing on comfort. So that's a very different issue or problem to have to engage. In addition to goals, probabilities are also important. And there's been a fair amount of work done in different study contexts to determine on average what the odds of survival to discharge are for patients who undergo cardiopulmonary arrest in hospital. And if you want to remember a number, again, this is all in the aggregate, if you put all patients together, about 18% of patients from these two studies uh, would be understood as surviving to discharge from an in-hospital cardiopulmonary resuscitation uh, attempt. So in our own patient care, of course, we have to then ask ourselves whether a given patient seems to be above average or below average based on their condition and prognosis. And those, of course, are judgment calls. And in some way, I think, we have to learn, and I think this is hard, to decide how to include this kind of information in our discussions with patients. The reason I say that is that when you ask, as we did in a small study, what patients think the odds of surviving long enough to leave the hospital after they receive CPR in the hospital because of cardiopulmonary arrest, you can see here that the mean estimate was 60% survival to discharge. So that, of course, is a lot more than 18%. And given that there can be such discrepancies, I think it's important as part of the informed consent process around CPR and code status is to somehow include information about general estimates of probabilities so that patients and family members are not under um, illusions about what the odds of, of success are. The last dimension that I think is also very important to think about when having these goals of care discussions is not is, is, it accompanies probability, but it goes on to something else. And that is to say, a patient may understand what their diagnosis and prognosis is. They may understand the intervention that you're discussing with them, and they may have made it very clear what their goal or goals are. And there may be a nice 
harmony between the goals and the intervention and the reality that they're facing. They may now be clear on the probabilities and accept those, but then the question is how much are they willing to go through to achieve their goals based on certain probabilities? And of course, different patients are different in this regard. And experienced clinicians need to also incorporate into discussions realistic assessments and information about what a given course of treatment is likely to mean for a patient uh, so that in case they think that the, that the burdens outweigh the benefits, then that might be in itself a reason not to go forward with a possible intervention. At the University of Iowa, we have uh, in the recent years revised our DNR order policy uh, to place DNR order discussions in a context of goals of care. And this is an ideal that we would like to strive for, and it's a challenge to operationalize that in any institution, of course. Uh, but we would really recommend for ourselves and for others that when having DNR order discussions, we first talk to patients about their goals of care and then situate DNR order discussions within that broader context of goals. So moving on to other ethical features of decision-making towards the end of life. You can see here a spectrum of ways in which decisions can be made towards the end of life. So we can withhold life-supporting treatment, we can withdraw it after it's been started, we can provide intensive analgesia for pain relief, we can provide sedation or medicines that sedate, uh, and this is a form of what they call palliative sedation, we'll come to that. Or some people would also talk about physician-assisted suicide. Not everyone would place assisted suicide in this list, because for some people this is not a form of medical treatment, at least not a legitimate one. And as a disclosure, I would say that I include myself in that number, that I don't uh, believe that physician-assisted suicide is appropriate, and I realize that some of you listening may disagree with that. And certainly, as we'll come to in a moment, two states in this country have passed statutes, Oregon and Washington, legalizing assisted suicide. So I recognize that this is a controversial issue, uh, but so that you can uh, take my words uh, for what they're worth, I think it's helpful that you understand what my um, deeper convictions and assessments of this issue are. So regarding the spectrum of possible interventions, I think it's really important to be clear on intentions and causes. So when we are providing interventions at the end of life, what are we intending? Are we intending to enhance comfort? Or might we be wondering about the possibility of hastening death? And the question is, is it ever appropriate to hasten death intentionally? And as I just alluded to, there's going to be disagreements, I think, in our culture about that and within our professions. We should wonder about when it's important to ask what the cause of death really is. And so in certain contexts, it's, it'll be very clear that the disease is clearly the, the, the cause of death. But what about when we withdraw treatment? Some people might think, well, the patient is dying because we have extubated them and taken them off mechanical ventilation. But does that, does, does that mean the extubation has killed the patient? Or does it mean the underlying COPD has caused the death? And one way to think about this, I think in a very helpful uh, way, is to say, what would the attending physician uh, write in the, uh, on the death certificate as the cause of death? And so we would not write stopping mechanical ventilation, we would write the pulmonary uh, patho pathology in the case of COPD. 
sometimes for some people they may think it can get a little more complicated. So what if there's a question of, of stopping a pacemaker in someone who is dependent upon that pacemaker because of a prior ablation of the conduction system of their heart? So that because of an iatrogenic modification, now stopping the pacemaker means that the patient will go into third degree heart block and may die from that. I think the majority of assessment, my sense would be, is that people would say this can still be appropriate in certain circumstances if someone is terminally ill and dying. But in my experience, I have found that cardiologists and others will disagree about this. And some clinicians are unwilling to stop a pacemaker in certain contexts towards the end of life. Others think that we should be willing to do that. So that's, I think, an area of controversy as well. So we need to be clear on intentions and causes in all of this. And the principle of double effect is very related to this question of, of causes uh, and effects. And it may be something that some of you are aware of, but I think I found that many people don't know it, at least not by this, this name. So let me go to that now. So the clinical context for us is the, the context of symptom control and terminal illness. Its philosophical use provides ethical support for rigorous palliation for those who believe they should never intentionally cause or hasten death, realizing that, as I've already suggested, not everyone believes this. The main purpose of this principle is to justify foreseen but unintended negative consequences, say the risk of respiratory suppression of an action that we believe is good, i.e. morphine uh, to, to treat pain. The paradigm here is really that of a side effect. So in the same way that an oncologist will prescribe chemotherapy knowing that the patient is likely to lose their hair, the oncologist proceeds with that treatment not because they want the patient to lose their hair, but because they want the good benefits from the chemotherapy in treating a cancer and they're willing to accept the foreseen but unintended side effect of the hair loss. So likewise, this notion of, of pain relief has come up because there is a concern in the use of certain medications like, like uh, opioid analgesics of respiratory suppression, at least theoretically. And it's interesting to note that this principle was actually supported by the U.S. Supreme Court in a case from 1997 that was used to justify the legitimacy of rigorous palliation, though the case itself was about assisted suicide. Here's a slide that describes the formal four points that are part of this uh, principle of double effect, and I'll leave that for your further reflection, and you can see a nice article for, for many details in the Archives of Internal Medicine for further reading, if you'd like. So palliative sedation is important to, to be clear on. Uh, so treating a dying patient's refractory symptoms, whether they be due to uh, be representing pain or dyspnea, delirium or nausea, with symptom-specific therapies that may have sedation as a side effect is part of what palliative care specialists certainly do and other generalists may do as well. And it's got an established place within palliative care as a necessary option of last res resort. And the point here is to say that the, the, the target of intervention is the symptom, pain, dyspnea, delirium, or nausea. It's not, the intention is not to provide sedation in the same way, for instance, that an anesthesiologist induces unconsciousness for surgery. 
The point here is to say that a palliative care specialist will provide symptom-specific therapies that have as a side effect the sedation that comes with that. And then the question is whether or not the patient or the surrogate is willing to accept that a heavy degree of sedation as a consequence. And sometimes that can be a challenge to determine because it may be very important for a patient to be alert and to be awake enough to have communication and fellowship with their loved ones before they die, as opposed to others who would say, no, the pain or nausea is, is so severe that I am willing to be sedated, even if um, it means I cannot no longer communicate with my loved ones. It's also interesting here to point out that empirical studies, uh, mainly observational studies, have actually looked at the question of whether or not patients who are sedated towards the end of life, are they more likely to die sooner than those who are not sedated? And interestingly and importantly enough, uh, there have not, uh, the differences have not been found. In fact, if anything, there, there have sometimes been some studies that have shown more prolonged life in patients who are sedated rather than less. And so some would actually argue that all this talk of the principle of double effect in the context of palliative sedation or um, intensive use of analgesics towards the end of life is actually not germane because those who receive those therapies actually don't indeed die sooner. Uh, there's no difference or they might even live longer. So that's an interesting sort of take on that whole uh, discussion of double effect. Now moving on to uh, assisted suicide and, and euthanasia, you can see here uh, sort of three different sort of levels of of what might be done or happened or what might be done prior to death. So on the one hand, we can talk about allowing patients to die, especially by say removing a feeding tube or mechanical ventilation. And that can be done either in the terminal illness or in a non-terminal illness. The Terry Schiavo decision uh, in the case of uh, someone in the persistent vegetative state got a lot of attention. And that was really about allowing someone to die uh, who was not necessarily terminally ill, not terminally ill in the usual sense of a six-month prognosis or less, uh, but the feeding tube was stopped and she was allowed to die. And that, of course, raised a lot of controversies for many people. Assisted suicide, of course, involves the prescription of a lethal dose of medication that a patient then voluntarily ingests on their own with the intention of ending their life. And then active euthanasia is used to describe the actual um, giving of a medicine, usually an injectable medicine, uh, to a patient to end their life. So it's actually done by a third party, not by the uh, patient, him or herself. And I show this windmiller because active euthanasia, for instance, is legal in uh, the, the, the country of, of the Netherlands. So the debate over physician-assisted suicide has been going on for many years in this country. And I think an initial point to make, it's important to realize that both sides of the debate claim to promote compassion and human dignity. And especially when having these discussions, it's important uh, to try to remember that uh, and to give the benefit of the doubt to, to both sides to the best of our ability, at least in the beginning of the discussion until the real differences of the debate are clarified and then potentially uh, lasting differences have to be accepted like other you know political and, and moral controversies in our society 
Those who favor assisted suicide emphasize self-determination, choice, and control. They reject the distinction between, the ethical distinction between killing and allowing to die. And they are willing to eliminate suffering by causing death. By contrast, those who oppose assisted suicide emphasize the difference between a negative and a positive right so that patients have the right to be left alone, but not that they don't have the positive right to actually be assisted in their suicide. Um, they, those who oppose assisted suicide accept the distinction between killing and allowing to die. They do not assume that all suffering can be eliminated. And they emphasize the protection of human life and the traditional goals of medicine going as far back as the Hippocratic Oath. They also raise concerns about the potential for abusing these kinds of legalizations. And they raise concerns about the long-term effects on the attitudes and practices of doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers when assisted suicide becomes a, an option all the time in terms of potentially, for instance, lessening the energy with which clinicians might pursue difficult courses of treatment or potentially even expensive courses of treatment when assisted suicide uh, is an option up front. The American Medical Association and the American College of Physicians are two organizations that oppose assisted suicide and have done so for many years. Here's a graph that shows some uh, data uh, from the, the state of Oregon. And the important point I want to emphasize here is that you can see a difference in the graph between the number of deaths reported from assisted suicide versus the number of patients receiving prescriptions. And so some would argue that one of the benefits of an assisted suicide law is that some patients want to have the reassurance that they could end their lives if they want to, even though they won't necessarily, not all of them, will actually use that option. And so just having the prescription is something that some patients want, whether or not they end up using it in the end. Um, last comment about assisted suicide from Oregon has to do with one study that looked at a family member's views on why patients requested assisted suicide. And you can see here that the five most highly rated reasons for requesting assisted suicide are dealing with issues of control, fear of poor quality of life, loss of independence, loss of dignity, and fear of inability to care for themselves in the future. It's important to realize here that in these top five reasons, you do not see uncontrolled symptoms or uncontrolled pain. And that's, a, I think, a good thing, which is to say that symptoms should be controllable in our day and age through palliative care. Uh, but it also tells us something about what is driving the rationale for assisted suicide and that it's not, by and large, about symptom control. It's about other very existential, even spiritual issues related to independence, perspectives on dignity, etc that are very, very philosophically loaded uh, concepts. So lastly, moving on to the concept of futility and why and how it may be debated. There was a paper in 1990 that suggested that our assessments or determinations of futility should be based on one of three criteria being met. Either of an intervention has less than 1% chance of success, or the patient's condition is such that they can only be maintained, their lives can only be maintained in an unconscious state, or that their lives are unsustainable outside of an ICU. This paper got a lot of attention. Uh, needless to say, it has not been accepted as the last word on how we should look at futility, because each one of these 
possibilities would be seen, at least by some people, as controversial and debatable, even though some of you might say, yes, those seem to be reasonable criteria uh, for uh, futility. I agree with those who uh, make some distinctions between different notions of futility. For instance, we can talk about qualitative futility, and the people who do so uh, are making reference, we may say, to what a patient's quality of life would be. So that, for instance, those a patient who's in, an, in a, what is believed to be a permanently unconscious state or can only live inside of an ICU, some would say that those are, ish, are examples of quality of life that are futile. There again, I think that's a very controversial statement to make. And there are differences within amongst professionals and citizens in our society about that. Therefore, I think qualitative notions of futility uh, should should not be used, even though there's a certain common sense notion in terms of that, that we're all aware of when we think about quality of life assessments. When it comes to statements of futility, that ups the ante, and I think makes it very awkward to to find a compelling notion of quality that everyone would agree with. There can also be a quantitative sense, and that gets at this example above, where if we say, well, based on numbers, we might conclude that under certain circumstances, it would be futile to do something. So someone might say, if there's only a one in a thousand chance that a, an intervention will help a patient, it's therefore for futile. Well, of course, the discussion will ensue, uh, wondering why does one draw the line at one in a thousand, should be one in a hundred, one in ten thousand, those debates can, can, can arise. The, the last option I put here is the one that I myself would recommend, and that is to say that a logical notion of futility can be used once we've had a discussion about goals of care. So if we can agree upon appropriate goals of care with our patients and their loved ones, then we can place any intervention in the context of that framework of a goal or goals and then decide whether or not a given intervention is likely to achieve the agreed upon goal. And then we can be much more, I think, compelling to say to a patient or family, for instance, Mr. Jones, based on the goal of care of living longer that you've explained is important to you, I need to explain to you that the intervention we've been talking about uh, today is not likely to get you to be able to live longer. Now that Mr. Jones may ask me, well, what do I mean by not likely? And then we may get into a discussion about probabilities and that has to be had. But the point is, is that if I can place the intervention within the context of the patient's own goals, it becomes much more compelling for them, I believe, if you can, in a sense, put the discussion on the ground, on the, on the terrain of their own goals in order to make that meaningful for them even though it's still always going to be a, a very involved discussion that is likely to take time and, and not necessarily be, be uh, resolved in, in, one, in one setting. There's a nice article from a few years back that talked about when medical treatment is futile, and it makes a few additional uh, points. It also takes the position that, that, that goals of care framework is the best way to think about futility. It also raises the issue of conscientious practice, which is very important, not only for physicians, but of course for all healthcare providers who are involved in a patient's care. And this is to say that if we, if I as a clinician have firmly concluded that something, that a certain intervention is inappropriate, and I'm willing to use the word futile, 
I do not have an ethical obligation to provide something that I think is futile, purposeless, makes no sense in that way. So that, for instance, one kind of scenario might be if I'm caring, if I were an ICU physician and I were, was caring for someone with metastatic cancer that was deemed untreatable, everyone agreed upon that, let's say, and now the patient has an overwhelming infection and has sepsis and is on multiple antibiotics, is on multiple pressor agents because of their septic shock. And the family, let's say, is insisting that CPR be performed at the moment of cardiopulmonary arrest. If I, as a clinician, say, I'm afraid, sir or ma'am, that I am unwilling to do that because it would be truly meaningless or futile to do so, then it's a very awkward situation, of course, that we cannot abandon patients at those moments. But we should be able to, to find ways, as this last bullet says, to approach such disagreements, to clarify the patient's or family's values, articulate our own standards of medical care, define benefits and burdens, and respectfully explain alternative treatments, and if there's time, to potentially even transfer the patient's care if there's another willing uh, physician or um, team member in the ICU context, or if it's not emergent, to potentially even considering a transfer of care uh, of a patient to another institution, if that's feasible. And of course, often such transfers are not feasible given the conditions. But the point here is to say that, that conscientious practice or practicing according to our conscience or integrity is very important. And I should add that even the Iowa Code um, states in the power of attorney uh, statutory law uh, that if a, if a physician, for instance, believes that a, a surrogate is not acting, a power of attorney is not acting in the best interests of a patient, the physician does not have to follow that power of attorney's directions. Um, but that, of course, is a very, very serious issue. I've never been in that situation myself, thankfully, and I think uh, it, we should all hope that that's very rare. But the point is, is that our first obligation um, is to our, our patients, and we also have to protect our own integrity. Now, stepping back from uh, all of this discussion as we're nearing the, the end of, of this presentation, I think it's important as we're thinking about the end of life to not uh, be so focused on certain kinds of details that we forget uh, the, the profundity um, uh, for us as human beings when we stand before death and, and questions of dying and the, the purpose of life and the purpose of our own lives and to wonder how it is that, that we address these kinds of questions at all. I already made mention to the support study that was done some years ago. And this was a study that, that tried to improve end-of-life care through certain interventions. And the, the trial actually, it was, it was a clinical trial, and it did not succeed on the terms that the investigators had defined up front for what success would look like. And in their own, shall we say, post-mortem assessment of their failed intervention, they stated in an article that they had made certain assumptions. They assumed that patients can articulate preferences, that patient preferences are stable, that patients and families will make decisions at critical junctures, and that decision makers incorporate information rationally. Their own conclusion was literally that these assumptions were naive. Now, some of you might be chuckling a bit in a knowing sort of way. 
Others of you might find this puzzling uh, for various reasons. I would suggest that on the one hand, uh, I understand what this slide is saying, because we have certainly all, as clinicians, been in situations where patients and family members struggled to come to terms with a very difficult situation. And certainly, if, if any of us have not yet encountered these diff most difficult situations in life, uh, it's harder to understand how tough life can be. And for those of us who have, we understand that, that there can be great challenges to wrap our minds around what is so painful for our hearts. And even if, if you use the language, even for our souls, when it comes to the deepest existential and spiritual and religious questions about life and death. But having said that, I hope also many of you uh, listening to this would be able to agree that we can actually have very good discussions with our patients and their family members. And we can use our minds very well, and our patients can use their minds and their reasoning ability to talk about what is most important to them, what values they have, what beliefs they have that form the groundwork for all of their values. And if we can talk to our patients about those beliefs and values, and then talk about their goals, and then talk about their treatment preferences, I certainly have been in situations where I believe very good decisions were made, rational decisions, and sometimes faith-based decisions that were also part of the patient's reasoning. This can all come together if it's done well. But the point is, is that to try to make it too neat or too tidy and put things in a box that don't quite fit in a box through certain rational procedures, sometimes we have to recognize that there are limitations to certain approaches, but we should also be hopeful that with our best efforts and patience and compassion and respectfulness, we can actually be a part of really good examples of shared decision-making toward the end of life. Another aspect of this has to do uh, with, or aspect of these larger concerns has to do with how we look at death generally and how we attempt to control it. Daniel Callahan, a well-known name in bioethics in this country, uh, has written various books, one of which is called The Troubled Dream of Life. And in this book, he suggests that we try to control death in our society through various ways. One way is by using science to make death a medical problem and by trying to understand and control the causes of death. And he says that ultimately doesn't solve the problem. He says we also engage in efforts at psychological management by trying to put death out of sight, i.e. putting it in hospitals and funeral parlors. But of course, this also doesn't work to control death. And then he would suggest that we rely upon law and regulation, like advanced directives and living will laws and whatnot, to help people specify how they want to die. But this too, he says, is no replacement for a socially shared meaning of death, which is, he would suggest, I think, broadly lacking in our society. And so he would say that what we need is the help of a community whose meaning we can share. And I think that's why I suspect that all of us have seen examples among our patients of situations where a patient and family are part of a community or a fellowship, whether it's religiously based or otherwise that comes to them and supports them. And especially if it's a tradition they have been raised in that is deeply 
integrated into who they are as, as a human being, that those are people who are much more likely to look at death and dying in a way that has deep meaning and even purpose and may even have uh, hope within that for them in a way that otherwise in our broader uh, society we, we have a hard time uh, pointing to for such sources of meaning. So I think part of what this whole discussion also is about is to say that, that we really need to do our best to get to know our patients, and to ask them questions, questions about their spiritual needs. And by that I mean, you know, what, where do they find meaning and purpose in life? Are there needs for reconciliation or forgiveness towards the end of life? What gives them hope? What is hope? What does hope mean for them as they are dying? And then if they believe in God, how does that help them? And how does that, what does that mean to them? How are they working with their spiritual leaders, whether they be pastors, priests, or, or rabbis, or other uh, religious directors who can be helpful uh, to them at their greatest time of need. So putting patients at ease within their own context towards the end of life, of course, is a great um, agenda on the, on the list of concerns for palliative care and hospice. Last slide here uh, is from a study that looked at factors considered important at the end of life for patients, family members, and physicians. And I like to use this slide because it makes various important points, one of which is to say that so much of the discussion about ethics in healthcare and towards the end of life focuses on patient autonomy and the need to decide or to determine what a patient's treatment preferences are. And the idea being that we need to follow procedures to discover what a patient's preferences are and then do our best to follow those preferences. But I've already made mention today to situations where patients may not be sure of what they really want and surrogates may not know what their loved ones want. And then here it's interesting to see that when, at least in this population, when patients and family members and physicians are interviewed, treatment choices being followed didn't even make it into the top three most important things. It's not to say that this is not important. I think we would all hopefully say that that is important, but some things are even more important. And you can see here freedom from pain, being at peace with God, and having the presence of one's family at hand towards the end of life. These are the kinds of things that matter the most uh, to patients and to family members and to, to physicians. And I presume we should also uh, presume that nurses and other healthcare providers so I think uh, that this is a nice way to end a discussion like this about ethics uh, and, and legal issues towards the end of life to really bring it home, uh, not just to procedures and to, to arguments, to definitions, but to remind ourselves that, that we as human beings are profoundly needy in various ways. And that though we would like to be independent, perhaps in, in a certain respect, ultimately the nature of, of our lives and the disabilities we, we uh, suffer or the, the diseases and the, the dying processes bring us to a very clear points of realization that we depend enormously on other people and some of us also would say we depend upon God ultimately. Uh, and the, the point is, is that, that we need to, to treat each other uh, within this reality and not uh, try to make uh, the process of decision-making uh, is simpler than it actually is. 
I've covered a lot of ground uh, here in this, in this brief uh, presentation, uh, and I would be very happy to, um, to, to be helpful to anyone who would like to communicate with me by email. And on the first slide, you saw my email, which is my first name, hyphen last name, at uiowa.edu. And I hope this has been of some help or interest to you today. And I uh, thank you for your time. Bye-bye.